if you discovered that in one month the world was going to end, how would you live? What would you do? What might that world look like? Here in Florida, we get a glimpse of it every time there's a named storm in the Atlantic Ocean, whenever people go crazy and lose their minds. All of a sudden, gas, toilet paper, and water disappear. It's interesting to me the thing that people go to. Gas and water, I understand. Like, it's the, the source of all life. Water, gas, the thing that helps us be able to... And then in toilet paper, it's the thing like you just... It goes. Anyway, it's, it is what it is. But if you found out in a month the world was going to end, how would you live? What would you do? And maybe you're not a Christian. And you hear that and you go, well, I would just do what I've always wanted to do without having to worry about any kind of consequences, repercussions. I could have ice cream every single day for breakfast and it would be fine. Maybe you are a Christian and you hear that and you would say, well, I would quit my job and I would go and I would share the gospel with absolutely everybody that I came in contact with. I would cut out everything that was unnecessary and only focus on the Great Commission. I think that's certainly respectable. I find it interesting, Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, was asked the same question. If he discovered the world was going to end today, how would he live? What would he do? His response in typical Lutheran form, he said, I would plant a tree and pay my taxes. What does he mean by that? Oh, friends, I think he means exactly what our text gets to today. And that we are to live with a certain kind of mindset that the return of Jesus is imminent. And that imminent return, the end of all things, should shape our lives, but not in this kind of over-the-top kind of way, but in a surprisingly ordinary way. We may not believe the world is going to end next month, um, there's just a quick tip. Anytime, it, it can sometimes be hard to spot people who are false teachers or the category the Bible would have for people teaching things contrary to the gospel. Let me tell you the easiest way. Anytime someone comes and tells you a date for when the world is ending, you can just go, okay, yeah, they have no idea what they're talking about. There's an easy way. Uh, the Bible says that no one knows the day of Christ's return. Um, and so anytime someone's like, I've done the math, it's October, 40, uh, October 40th. Wow, that's, there it is. You know that guy's an idiot. Don't listen to him. It's October 17th, 2028. I've done the math in the book of Revelation. It's coming. You just go, okay, he has no idea what he's talking about. But what the Bible does say over and over and over and over again is that we as Christians are to live with this sort of imminent return of Jesus as though it were today. And that viewpoint, that perspective should change the way that we live. That's another reason why Martin Luther, I think, sums it up this way. He says, there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. Friends, I think that's where our text gets to today, that we are to live in light of those two days. Now, Peter's writing again to um, Christians in Asia Minor. And as we get to this part of our uh, text today, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Verses 7 through 11. Here's what Peter writes. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. 
Be hospitable to one another without complaining. And just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. As see, Peter in some ways asks, answers the question that we ask, how are we to live with the end of all things being near? The end of the world being near. How are we to live? He answers in four ways. There are four things that we are to do. It'll be our outline for today. Here's how we are to live then as exiles, as strangers here in this world following Jesus with the end near. We are to first seek a sober mind. See this in verse 7. Seek a sober mind. Second, we are to look to love constantly. Look to love constantly. This is verse 8. Third, we are to show hospitality without grumbling. Verse 9, show hospitality without grumbling. And then fourth, we are to serve with what you've been given. In verses 10 and 11, serve with what you have been giving, given. Sober-mindedness, love, hospitality, and service. That's how we should live, knowing the world is going to end. He begins here in verse 7, to seek a sober mind. Looking at verse 7, the end of all things is near. Now, we need to do a little bit of work before getting to sober-mindedness. Just make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, Peter wasn't wrong here. Uh, Peter wasn't like the crazy preachers that would say, hey, the world is ending next year. You need to get your life in order. Peter didn't just guess and get it wrong. Peter's talking as the New Testament talks. There's a lot of phrases used to describe this current age that we are in, this age after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and before his return. That age, after his ascension, before his return. That whole time period, the Bible describes as the last days. So when you read the last days or the last hour or the end of the ages, these are all phrases, the last times. These are all phrases the New Testament uses to describe that time period. So he's not talking about, oh, the end of all things is near. It's going to be happening next month, next year. He means we are in that time period now. Again, number of ways the Bible talks about this. Uh, maybe most clearly Hebrews 1, 2, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The author writes that uh, in these, during these last days that God speaks to us through his son. Well, when has God spoken to us through his son? After his life and ministry. Those are the last days. I mean, we see this everywhere. Last days. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll send my notes out on the app. I won't go through all the different references, but it's all over the New Testament. Now, this is what Peter's talking about here. The end of all things. We are living in the last days. And yet the last day has not come. But we are to live like it will come before this day is done. That's how the New Testament understands the Christian is to live in relation to that. We're in the last days. The last day has not yet come. But we are to live like the last day will come before this day is done with this imminent return. And that viewpoint, that perspective should alter the decisions we make today. Because we probably wouldn't make them if that wasn't true. So friends, how is your life shaped differently because Jesus may come at any moment? How do you live differently 
in light of that imminent return of Jesus, in light of the fact that the end of all things is near, with the knowledge that we are strangers and exiles here, with the knowledge of knowing our time is short, those truths should galvanize us to make our time here count, to make us go, we don't want to waste our lives. It doesn't create frenzy and chaos. Oh, Jesus is coming. It could be any moment. Time to get crazy, right? That's Whenever people begin talking about the end of the world, they begin to get crazy. They go out and buy cardboard, make these signs, stand on the edge of the road, don't take shower for months, and begin to yell at people. These are the people at the end of the world. That's what we think about, this kind of frenzied chaos. That's not what we're talking about here. In fact, it doesn't create frenzy or chaos, but knowing that the end of all things is near, look at what it should result and produce in us. Verse 7, we should therefore be alert and sober-minded. It should create this kind of clear-headedness, not frenzy or chaos, but a sober-mindedness, an alertness. I think about um, anytime I go out hunting with my father-in-law back in Mississippi, going out in the afternoon hunts. We'll go at about two or three up to the stand and the sun sets at 530. So we've got about two, three, three and a half hours to be out there. And here's what always happens for me. There in the middle of the afternoon, I've got to fight falling asleep. Two o'clock, three o'clock, it's a struggle. But five o'clock hits, the sun begins to fall and I know I've only got a little bit of time here left. I never struggle to fall asleep right there at the very end. I'm alert listening to every twig crack. Uh, I'm sitting there listening and I hear this huge, it sounds like a huge buck coming up behind me. I just know it. I'm waiting. I've got uh, looking out the window, waiting for this huge deer to walk out and then out scurries this squirrel. And I'm like, how in the world can you make that amount of noise? I thought you were a 250 pound animal. You're a squirrel. We learned last week the, the, the dangerous and evil nature of squirrels this is part of their deception. As it gets closer to the end, my alertness keeps me awake. I'm I'm in tune to the things around me. I think that's what Peter's getting at here. The end of all things is near. Live with that reality and have an alertness about you. Be looking, be ready, be sober-minded, clear-headed. Don't be frenzied and chaotic. You can be clear-headed and sober. The opposite of how the world lives in drunkenness. Right earlier in verse 3. We're to be sober-minded. And that sober-mindedness and alertness produces something in us. You see what that's for? That alertness and sober-mindedness is particularly here in verse 7 for prayer. That we would be alert, awake, aware of the reality that we live in and driven to our knees in prayer. It should produce that in us. Right? I can't help but think of Peter writing this and remembering the time that this wasn't true for him. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he goes in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes to pray. He brings three of his disciples with him and says, wait here and pray while I go off. This is when Jesus is sweating blood, staring the reality of the cross in its face, praying that the Father would have this cup pass from him, this cup of wrath that Jesus was walking towards. Oh, Father, there's any other way. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It was the greatest anxiety and agony that Jesus had faced so far in his life. And he brought his three closest friends with him to pray for him. And when he went back, what did he find? They were snoring, had fallen asleep. 
When he came back to the disciples, he found them sleeping. Well, friends, this week, as I've thought about that, Peter now writing to Christians in Asia Minor and to us, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. This week, as I've thought about that scene, I wonder for me, oh Lord, if you were to come back today, how would you find me? Would you find me alert in prayer? Or would you find me asleep? Distracted by the comforts of this world. Oh, that I would live with that kind of knowledge of the end of all things being near and to be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Peter continues, said not only would he be alert and sober-minded, but above all, maintain constant love or fervent love. You hear the priority that Peter places here, above all. He's got an order here to these virtues, and he puts love at the very top. He's not the only one to do that. Jesus, Paul, John, all through the New Testament. Love has a priority in virtues. Above all, Peter is saying, let that reality of the end of time, Jesus' return, us going home to be with the Father, let that reality produce in you right now primarily a constant love for one another. Not just love for one another, a constant love. A love that doesn't break, a love that doesn't skip, a love that doesn't take pauses, a love that has a constancy to it, a love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Here quoting Proverbs, Proverbs 10, 12. Proverbs says this, hatred stirs up conflicts, but love covers all offenses. What, Peter's, what is Peter saying here? What Peter is not saying is the way in which you love others forgives you for your sins. It covers your sins. If you love other people, well, that love covers a multitude of your sins. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that when you love others, that love has a way of overlooking certain offenses. It doesn't point out every flaw. It has a predisposition to forgiveness whenever it's asked for. It covers those sins. But what is love? I have to stop myself from going into a 1980s love ballad right now. <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. <laughs> Baby, don't hurt. What is love? There, I couldn't stop myself. I said it and it just, I knew there was no stopping that train. We need to be careful. And we say this often because love is one of those words that's hijacked in our English language. And it's just so cheapened from how the Bible describes it. We hear love and it's like, a, it's a feeling that comes and goes. I love you. I've fallen in love with you. I've fallen out of love with you. I love this person I just met yesterday in the grocery store. It's, uh, I've fallen out of that, in love with that person because I saw what they bought at the grocery store. Just in and out. Our love comes and goes. It's a fleeting feeling that we can't really control. And the way the Bible describes love is drastically different. And I just want to read through the definition of love in the Bible. If you've been to a, a Christian wedding, goodness, you've definitely heard this. But I want to make sure if you've heard it a lot the definition of love, don't just run past it and really think about what it means for you to have a love like this. 1 Corinthians 13 verses 4 through 8 defines love this way. Love is patient. Oh friends, it gives time for God's grace to work its way into other people's hearts. It doesn't expect perfection from people quickly. Hey, come on. Come on, you've got to get this together. It is time. You, it's time. Come on, no, love is, love is patient. Patience isn't something expressed in perfection. Patience is often expressed whenever there are mistakes. 
And that's what love is. It's patient. Not only is it patient, love is also kind. It's not harsh or abrasive or sharp. It has this gentle warmth to it that invites and welcomes people in. A certain kindness. Love does not envy. See, instead of wanting what others have or being jealous of others' accomplishments, love rejoices when others succeed. And then look at others and go, man, I want that. I wish that was mine. I can't believe they had that. I've worked so much harder than them. Love rejoices. It does not envy. Not only is it not, does it not envy, but it is also not boastful. Love does not make much of itself. Love is not the most aggrandizing perspective in the room, constantly boasting about its works and its accomplishments and how much it should be praised. Love is not only boastful, but it's also not arrogant. It does not assume to be the smartest person in the room with every right answer to every problem. And people just need to get into the presence of you to hear your wisdom, the answers to the problem. Instead of interrupting or just waiting for other people to stop speaking so that you can share your perspective, love draws out what is in other people, believing that they have unique contributions that's needed for your growth. Love isn't arrogant, it's humble. Love is not rude. It's not biting. It's not passively aggressive. It's not degrading. And if you're a husband and you just passively nudged your wife right there, you, you need to hear this part of the sermon. <laughs> Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. You really think about what that means. Love sets its focus outside of itself. Not seeking what's best for itself, but seeking what's best for others. Always looking to others first above and over itself. Love is not irritable. It's not quick-tempered. It's not short-fused. It's not dependent on whether or not you've had your cup of coffee that morning. It's not irritable. You don't get an excuse based off of personality or what has done against you. Love is not irritable. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. I think this one in particular is what we're getting to in our text with covering a multitude of sins. Love has a short-term memory problem in regards to past wrongs. In an argument, it doesn't bring up a laundry list of things from the past. Always keeping that record close for whenever it's going to be useful to use in the midst of the conversation. No, love in a Christian mindset from a spiritual perspective looks like Dory from Finding Nemo. Cannot remember a thing. When that forgiveness has been sought, it doesn't keep a record of those wrongs. But full forgiveness is just that. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Instead of getting jazzed whenever people that you don't like do bad things or bad things happen to them, what really gets love going is whenever the truth is known and the truth is celebrated. Love bears all things. It is marked by its ability to carry difficult things like shortcomings, sins, and difficulties. Love believes all things. Now, this is one I wish we could press deeply into our hearts and our relationships. 
When all the information about a person or a situation might not be known, love believes the best rather than assuming the worst. It's a predisposed bias towards believing the best in brothers and sisters. Love hopes all things. It's not naive, false optimism, but real hope. Love endures all things. Love has a certain durable quality that can make it through rugged terrain. And love finishes with this, never ends. The very end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes about three virtues, faith, hope, and love. But again, he does the same thing Peter does as he brings priority to love. He says, but the greatest of these is love. One of the reasons why is because of the never-ending nature of love. Think about what faith and hope are. Here's some of the definitions of faith and hope in the New Testament. Hebrews 11.1 says that faith is the proof of what is not seen. One day, all those in Christ will see their Savior face to face. And there will be no more need for faith. Hope. Here's what hope says in Romans 8, 24, 25, and 26. Hope that is seen is not hope. Because who hopes for what he sees? Think about it this way. I don't know if there's any Texas Rangers fans here, but the Texas Rangers just won a World Series. There's two of you. Congratulations. I'm happy for you. They just won a World Series. First World Series in a franchise history. Only five teams left now that haven't won a World Series. The Rangers are no longer one of them. Imagine if you're watching the game with other Rangers fans, the last out is thrown, the Rangers win the World Series, and you get on the edge of your seat and go, man, I hope, I hope we can win the World Series. Friends would look at you and like, what are you, what are you talking about? They're holding the trophy right now. You can see, you don't need to hope. You can see right here. Oh, friends, there is going to be a day again when we stand before our Savior and the thing that we have hoped for will be standing right in front of us. And there will be no need for hope anymore because our hope will be realized. But there is something about love that will not end. Your love will never end. It will only intensify for all of eternity as you are fashioned more and more into the shape, into the image, and into the heart of your Savior. And friends, His love knows no ends. That love will live and last forever. It never ends. And so above all, maintain a constant love like that. For one another. Let that love cover a multitude of sins, keeping a short list of wrongs for those that have brought forgiveness, being predisposed to believing the best in people, and to be marked by a Christ like kind of love. Oh, friends, maintain constant love. Look for love constantly. Notice there is no clause in there to love lovable people. That's easy. That's what Jesus is like. Everyone loves their friends. It's loving your enemies that's hard. That's the Christian call to love. Again, if we aren't careful, we can go, I'll love my friends. That's great. No, friends, the Christian call is for that love to not be parenthetical, to not be particularly focused, but for that love to be constant, for that love to be all-encompassing. And it doesn't just mean loving those in the church or loving enemies, those who may be outside the church. It means loving hard people within the church. There, there's difficulties and personalities and sin that still exist. 
That's why Paul says that you have to bear with one another because there will be difficulty. How can we bear? Love bears all things. I will let you down because I'm a human being. I will sin against my wife and my children because I'm not Jesus. There will be real difficulty that exists within this community. How can we make it? Well, friends, above all, we must maintain a constant love for one another. I'm struck that Peter here, as he's thinking about the end of all things, and all of this life is lived in the shadow of that reality, that what that life looks like, again, is not over the top or anything grand. It's a one another kind of a life. Loving one another, hospitable to one another, serving one another. That's what it should do. It's a great new book. I haven't read it yet, so I don't know if it's going to be good or not. I know the author, so I assume it's going to be good, so I'll go ahead and say it anyway. But there's a new book coming out called Loving People Who Drive You Crazy. I think it will be helpful because this call to love is a hard thing. Oh, but friends, it's something that we are to do with the end of all things being near. Third, Peter writes that we are to show hospitality without grumbling. Verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. But it's a surprise that this one's here, right? It was for me. I hear love. I'm like, that's right. It's love. It's the, the primary virtue. Service, yes, is what Jesus came to do. Even being alert, so reminded for prayer. Okay, I can get there. But hospitality, huh? Seems like a random good thing to do. Just plugged right in here to like one of the four things that Peter's saying that our lives should look like as strangers and exiles as we're almost home. But hospitality, we see, is not an a optional add-on to the Christian life, again, based on your personality profile. Hospitality throughout the New Testament is something that is driven not just to a life that reflects Jesus, but also is so integral to this mission that God has given us. It was integral to Jesus' mission to be hospitable. You look at his life, one author notes in the Gospel of Luke, almost every single interaction with Jesus, he's either on his way to a meal at a meal or coming from a meal. It was integral to his ministry. Think about the qualifications for an elder or a pastor. We'll be voting on three new elders. Our members will tonight at our family meeting. One of those qualifications is to be hospitable. Why is that such a big deal? Again, two reasons. One, it reflects God's nature, a hospitable God. But also, particularly in the first century, it was so necessary for the mission of the church. Uh, Guys, there was no Motel 6 people just stroll up into a town and go stay at. No one was leaving the light on for them. A fun fact, Motel 6, you know how its name got started? It got started, but every room was $6. Super 8 then came along. It was like, oh, inflation. The R rooms are $8, but they're super. So come stay with us. It's not the case anymore. Don't go to Motel 6 expecting that. There were no hotels just scattered across with availability. It was expensive to go somewhere and stay. For the mission to be able to go, we went through a Bible study in Acts uh, over this past year. And as Paul's going on all these three different missionary journeys, what was critical to this mission was the hospitality of brothers and sisters obeying this. Not only that, but they didn't have church buildings that they owned in the first century. Churches, more than likely, met in the homes of wealthy Christians that could fit large groups of people. Think of Lydia, a seller of purple cloth in Acts 16. Someone with wealth, financial mind. She more than likely housed the church in Philippi that Paul wrote the letter to Philippians to. The church existed in part because Christians obeyed this, that they were hospitable. 
But it wasn't just a first century contextual thing. This carries beyond that. Even with hotels around, there is still this call on Christians today, on you, any follower of Jesus, to be hospitable as well. And not just hospitable, but to be hospitable without complaining. In one sense, I appreciate, I think that Peter is here recognizing that it can be difficult to be hospitable. He wouldn't have said you need to do it without complaining if there wasn't a tendency to want to complain. Peter, of all people, knows about a predisposition to sin. And he's saying that there is this difficulty with hospitality, but we are to do it not just begrudgingly, but to do it without complaining, do it without grumbling. That is still to mark Christians today. And yes, I think this goes with our homes to open our homes for people to stay in our homes. We open our homes to people who may be traveling, to those who may be in need in our area. But it also goes, I think, to our hearts. Do we have a hospitable personality? Do people feel welcomed around us? This is where it goes beyond. This, is, this isn't a command just for people who may be in a home or apartment. But maybe you're here and you're a student. You're a middle school or high school student. You walk into a lunchroom and you sit down and you notice somebody over it's been about a month they've been sitting by themselves. Do you welcome them in to your life? Are you hospitable? Do you look at those who are far off and bring them near like God has done to you? When people are around you, they feel welcomed. Are you hospitable and hospitable without complaining? I love this quote from John Dennis. He's a pastor in Chicago. He said this, The key with hospitality is to begin. It doesn't matter if you live in an apartment, a dorm, or a house. Once a week, opening our home, baking a few cookies, saying hello in the elevator, checking up on an old neighbor, and borrowing sugar from the next apartment. Yes, a city, an urban city is a place of isolation, but it may be that through our doors, all kinds will come. One who's hungry, an intellectual questioning a colleague in crisis, a student from a far-off land. It may be that God's new people from the nations will sit around our table. It may be that having shared a meal and having tasted of Christ, their own table will be open for the gospel in a country we would never reach. Hospitality is not something we do overly pragmatically. We do not practice hospitality to, quote, get conversions. We practice hospitality because it is right. We practice hospitality because we are God's people. We share God's goodness through our home because God has shown his goodness to us. His grace overflows the thresholds of our homes. Friends, start today. Have a conversation with your spouse over lunch today. What's a way that we can make a step to be more hospitable in our home? Talk with your friend, your roommate and say, how can we be more hospitable in our lives? Take that step today. The fourth thing that Peter mentions here is that we are also to serve with what you've been given. Verses 10 and 11. Serve with what you've been given. It says this, just as each one has received a gift, here's a command, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So here's the fourth thing. Again, walk through them again quickly, 7 through 10. Be alert and sober-minded. There's the first. Maintain constant love. There's the second. Be hospitable. There's the third. And the fourth, use it to serve others. What's the it he's talking about there? 
What is the it we're supposed to use to serve others with? Well, he says right there in the verse, first, uh, first of verse 10, that we have received each one a gift. And Peter doesn't see any exclusion. If there is a Christian, you have received some gift from God. I think particularly he's talking about spiritual gifts, ways in which God has wired you to be able to use and serve the body and glorify the head. But I think, honestly, it's really a perspective for anything that you have to see whatever it might be, your personality, your gifting, whatever spiritual gift God may have given you, but also any kind of grace and kindness from God. Whatever it is that you have, seeing it as a tool and vehicle to serve others with. And he gives us the word here of how we're supposed to do it as good stewards. Seeing that we are stewards of these things. That you are not an owner of your personality or your intellect or your gifting or your money or your home. You are a steward of those things. Meaning God owns them. He's given them to you for a while and you're going to have to give them back to him. That's what a steward is. Right? Whenever uh, my wife and I went to an internship in Capitol, in, on Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., Fall 2015, it was a short internship. They provided housing for us. That also meant that we couldn't bring our dog with us. They had no animals up there. We have a terrifying animal. It was hard for us, I think, for anybody to, to watch while we were gone. He's about three and a half pounds soaking wet, a Yorkie poo. But man, that bark will just pierce your eardrums. It's dangerous. He knows it. But we couldn't bring him up there with us. So what we did while we were gone is we had friends watch him. When we came back, they gave him back to us. During those five months, they didn't own our dog. They were stewards of our dog. They watched him while we were gone. But when we came back, they gave him back to us. Oh, friends, that's the perspective that Peter's getting here and the New Testament gets to of everything that we have. It's not ours. It's God's. Everything. I think it's particularly hard in a capitalistic society that we think we earn our stuff. I worked for this. That is mine. It's my paycheck. It's my house. My car. It's mine. The Bible cuts right through that and says everything that you have has been given to you and it's God's. You're a steward of it, but you should use it not for yourself, but to serve others with. As a faithful steward, including the different giftings that God has given you. What spiritual gifting God may have given you to use that to serve others. And get that gifting, that grace, friends, it's varied. You see in verse 10? To be good stewards of the varied grace of God. That God makes people in all sorts of different ways. Giving all sorts of different kinds of gifts. That no gift is better than the other. It is given only by God. And it is given by God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, like a body with all these different members that then builds the body up and glorifies the head. It's a varied kind of gifting. A varied grace of God. And what this can do is help us not expect everyone else to think or care about the same things that we do. Well, the church should be doing this or care about this. or They need to be doing this better because, I mean, I'm good at all of those things. The church just needs lots of me's and then we'd be better. What Peter's saying here, what the Bible shows us is that God makes the church so diverse and varied on purpose. You think about harmonies and notes that play all these different notes that come together in perfect harmony together, make this beautiful sound. That's what he's getting at here, this varied grace, these varied gifts that come together and create this harmonious sound and unity that glorify God and build up the church. It's a varied kind of a grace.
He then sums up and categorizes those gifts in two general categories in verse 11. In speaking gifts and serving gifts. Verse 11, if anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. So he's saying there's different kind of giftings within the church that deal with speaking, whether it's preaching, whether it's teaching, discipleship, counseling, one-on-one ministry. Any moment you find yourself where you are offering God's words to others, he's saying that you should do it as one who speaks God's words. Find yourself underneath him. Don't do it on your own. Seek to share God's words. And I think certainly this gets to preaching. Uh, one, um, one of my favorite pastors, Kent Hughes, described it this way. He said, described his preaching this way. He said, there are times when I'm preaching that I have especially sensed the pleasure of God. I usually become aware of it through unnatural silence. The ever-present coughing ceases and the pews stop creaking or the chairs stop creaking. Bringing an almost physical quiet to the sanctuary or basketball gym through which my words sail like arrows. I experience a heightened eloquence so that the cadence and volume of my voice intensify the truth that I am preaching. There is nothing quite like it. The Holy Spirit filling one's sails, the sense of his pleasure and the awareness that something is happening among one's hearers. The experience is, of course, not unique for thousands of preachers have similar experiences and even greater ones. I read that and I go, I know exactly what he's talking about. I can sense it whenever I all of a sudden get caught up away from my notes and people begin to listen and more than one or two people begin to say amen. Begin to see the Lord is doing something here. Oh, friends, it isn't just in preaching. I think there can be a difficulty if we think that only comes in preaching. Friends, that comes as you're on your way to the bedroom of your child to have a conversation with her about discipline or with him about discipline. Are you going speaking your own words? Are you going to go speaking God's words to them? If you're sitting down with a Christian, someone in the church that calls up and says, hey, can we get coffee? And they sit down with you and they begin to express some of the difficulties in their life. In that moment, when you're offering words to them, whose words are you offering them? Your words or God's words? Well, how can I know? One, we have to know God's words in order to share them. But secondly, we have to rely on him in those moments. If we walk into those moments and go, you know what? I've kind of got this. For me, maybe I walk in and go, I've just crushed sermon prep this week. I've been able to get together. I know my outline. I understand the text. I can get up and I rely on my notes. I will leave the power of God at that door. And friends, if you walk in a situation with your child, with your spouse, or with your loved one or friends... And you rely on your own wisdom or your own research or your own ability to navigate a conflict. Friends, you will leave the power of God at the door. Walk in prayerfully. Lord, would you help me? Would your words come through here now? It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Pray it in the few steps before you get to that door, before you step in. But strive to speak his words. And you need his help to do it. But not only speaking gifts, but also service. This is also in verse 11. If anyone then serves, let it be from the strength God provides so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. And see, maybe within the church, we have have tons of people in this church who love to serve. I was talking with Holly, our, our kids ministry director, Grove Kids director, 
And she said, honestly, we have too many children's volunteers. We may be the only church in America that can say that. That doesn't mean don't sign up to serve in kids' ministry, though. I just realized that may, yeah, Holly's nodding her head over there. The church is growing. There'll be a few more. Yeah, anyway, sign up for kids. I realized that was, yeah, both encouraging, but don't, don't stop serving in kids' ministry. People are here early, setting up chairs, putting flags out, getting coffee ready, getting communion ready every single week, and people do it joyfully. But friends, when in those moments in the church, what Peter's saying here is don't go, oh yeah, preaching really needs God's help. I can do all this on my own though. I can put a flag out. I can say hello to people as they come in. I can show up and run sound, whatever it might be. I can schedule volunteers. Friends, if you continue to do that on your own strength, not only does God not get glory from it, but you will eventually run out. See, Peter's saying that not only in those moments of speaking ministry, but also service ministry, that we have to rely and serve from the strength that God provides. That's how we continue to give because we continue to be given to. It's like an airplane where they always tell you when you're getting ready to take off, before you help somebody else put their mask on, you've got to put yours on first to be able to breathe. If you don't, you're going to pass out and you're not good to anybody. My friends, it's the same with serving. If you come consistently trying to help everybody else without relying on the strength that God's provided you, you will at some point pass out and not be good to anybody. But in every moment of service here within the church, that we do it from the strength that God provides, overflowing from a, a heart that has been near to Jesus. And seeing that service, not just on Sunday, oh, but throughout the week, that service is to mark us throughout the week, in our jobs, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, making lunches for kids, doing a favor for your coworker, inviting someone from school to come and sit with you who's been by themselves, serving in those capacities. Serve from the strength that God provides. Don't rely on yourself. You won't be able to make it. You won't be able to make it far. Because not only does it help us make it, but friends, it also brings the glory to the proper place. As we begin to serve in ways that the world finds unordinary, extraordinary, different, we can say, this isn't from me. And continuing to do it from the strength that God has given us and being near to Jesus. Because he's the one that gets the glory in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. As we live a life like this, knowing the return of Jesus is near, the end of all things is near, we'll leave, we'll leave this way. I'm going to be sober-minded, maintain constant love, be hospitable, serving others as from what God has given us. We do all of that so that Jesus is glorified, so that he gets the glory, he gets the power forever and ever, amen. Because these four qualities are not just characteristics we're aiming at. Friends, it's a person that we're aiming at. These four characteristics are not just random personality traits. Peter's here writing, saying, Christian, as you live with the end of all things and near, aim to look like Jesus. He is the one who is Alert and sober-minded at all times, clearly thinking, never frenzied or chaotic. In moments of distress, in moments where people were questioning him, he always remained cool. He always remained collected. He was never frenzied, not knowing what to do. He was always alert, knowing the reason why he was there, and always sober-minded. Jesus is the one who has shown constant and never-failing love, maintaining it perfectly. John 
It says this in John 13, that Jesus, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And his love will never leave us. It is a love that will not let us go. He is the one who has maintained perfect and constant love. Oh, and he is the best host. He is the one who spreads a feast before us, opens wide his doors and welcomes us home invites us into his household, that when we were far off, that he brought us near into the household of God. And we're not only invited into his house, but when we get there, we won't walk in and go, this feels strange and unfamiliar, and I feel like I'm encroaching on someone else's space. Have you ever walked into a house like that? You're worried at any point you're going to mess something up because everything feels like it's for somebody else and everything's in its place. No, when you walk into the Father's house, Jesus says that you're walking into a room that He has prepared for you. It's your home. It's His hospitality welcoming you in. You're not a stranger or a guest. You're a child coming home. Friends, He is the perfect hospitality, the perfect host, and never complains, never grumbles. And He... Oh, in the perfect way, lived a life of service. If there was really a word to mark how Jesus lived, this is the word that he gives us in his gospel. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That he looked at others as more important than himself. And he laid down his own self-interest for the sake of you. Motivated by love, a desire to bring you home. Friends, He has come to serve you. And what does that service look like? He laid His life down for you. He died in your place so that you could be forgiven and not just forgiven, but welcomed home. Hallelujah. So again, I love the story of the prodigal son. Because in the story of the prodigal son, the son took the inheritance, paid it all, came up with a plan to then go back home and say, okay, I'll go, I'll work, I'll be a father's hired servant, I'll begin to pay it off, and I just, you know, he's, the servants are better off than I am right now. He couldn't imagine becoming a child again, but if he could just be a hired servant. So he comes back to the father with all the wrong that he had done against him, and the father runs to him, was looking for him, embraces him, and the son begins his speech that he'd been working on. Oh, I've sinned against you. And I'm not worthy to be called your son, but if you just treat me as a hired servant. And the father cuts him off. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. You have been forgiven completely. The debt that you owed does not need to be repaid. He absorbed it himself. But here's the point that I want to make here is that not only did he forgive him, canceling the debt, absorbing the payment himself, but he then welcomed the son back home. Forgiveness wasn't the end of the story. The son coming back home was the end. Restored back as a son, given the robe, given the ring. And then what happens? They have a party like that household has never seen. The fattened calf, all the music, so much so that the elder brother, the one who had never left, had never done anything wrong, had always been around the house. It said he was in the field working and he heard music and dancing. That's the kind of party that was happening in that house. He heard the dancing. He's doing his work and he's like, is that the Cupid shuffle? The le- I can hear the stuff. They're to the right. Now they're going to the left. They are walking it out right now. 
He hears the dancing. There is a feast, a celebration in the Father's house. This is what it gets to. And Jesus gives this parable for those who are relying on themselves and asking Jesus, why are you hanging out with sinners and tax collectors? What are you doing with them? Jesus said, they are the ones I came for. The person who doesn't need any help doesn't need a Savior. I came for the ones who know that they're sick. The ones who know that they're lost. The ones walking through this world going, this isn't working. I can feel the guilt nagging in the back of my mind. I can feel that I was created for something more. And nothing in this world is filling it. Jesus says, it's for you I've come. And if you come to me, your soul can finally find the rest that it's been looking for. Come home. He is the one. He's the one alert, constant in love, always hospitable, and coming to serve others. And so, friends, we aim to emulate Him. Knowing the end of all things is near, we aim to look like Him. Emulating His life, empowered by His Spirit. Living like Martin Luther said, with those two days in view, this day and that day. And that we could then be marked as individuals and as a church by sober-mindedness, by constant love, by uncomplaining hospitality, and by faithful service. Let's pray.